open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Okay, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Uh, we have a legendary interview today with Jeff Garzik. He's a core Bitcoin developer and been involved in the Linux community also pretty much since the beginning of Linux. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Trace. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of fun, you know, those of us that have been around the, the space for a while, we, you know, we, we butt heads on a regular <laughs> basis, <laughs> regular basis, right? And I remember, uh, I actually butted heads quite a bit with both, I think, you and uh, Greg Maxwell. Like uh, 2012, uh, 2011, something like that. Might have even like been that. 2011. I mean, it yeah, was back in the day. way back in the day. And, you know, we we had very vehement kind of disagreement on things uh andreas antonopoulos actually uh got involved in it too and that's that's what started him actually getting out publicly talking about bitcoin but what i think it highlights is you know we can have very contentious issues we can have vehement disagreements but as long as we approach it in a very logical professional way out of that crucible of discussion we can get the best ideas Oh, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, part of open source is about transparency. You've got to get those discussions out in the open. You will have disagreements and drawing parallels with the current block size debate. There are plenty of disagreements, but at the end of the day, with scaling Bitcoin and some of the other efforts, coming together as a community and really solving these problems together, because that's where our community is going to move forward. You know, any sort of fracturing, you saw that with the Unix industry decades ago, et cetera. That's really what open source works against. And I think that uh, Bitcoin is very much the same way as Linux is you get that the openness, the transparency, but you need professionalism along with that. And if you don't have that professionalism, then at the end of the day, people just sit in their silos and disagree and it's not productive at all. And so being professional and working together is absolutely key. So like, what's a little bit of your background? Like you got started with Linux in the very beginning. You got started in Bitcoin. I think some of your first commits were in 2010. Almost. Late so, 2010. Uh, like maybe you can talk a little bit about like your background and I mean, why is Jeff Garzik such a big deal? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like to think that I, I'm just one more nerd. I've just been around the block a little bit more than everyone else. But, uh, you know, I'm not not necessarily any more special than any other developer. My background is uh, coming from Linux. I uh, was a very early Linux developer, uh, even before the days of uh, Red Hat, back in uh, 91, 92, 93. And uh, I see so many parallels between Bitcoin and Linux in that in the early days of Linux, you had university students, uh, uh, professional engineers working on their spare time with this stuff. And, uh, you know, it was really very early stage, early efforts 
And with Bitcoin, it's very much the same way. And I think the ecosystem is going to, as I've seen in Linux, I think the ecosystem is going to take that next step and start to professionalize, make some new connections with enterprise grade Fortune 500 companies. And that's really what's going to take uh, Bitcoin to the next level. You saw the network effect take hold in Linux, both on the software side where companies would require uh, Linux in order to have, say, a database uh, running or something like that. And on the developer side, you also had a clear network effect of Linux developers uh, saw that other very smart people were challenging themselves with this new operating system that came out of uh, a university student from Helsinki, Finland. And with Bitcoin today, you have exactly the same thing. You have this massive energy of developers who are looking not only at uh, challenging themselves, but challenging really the world at large to think differently, think decentralized, think how can we uh, change trust? How can we change fundamental business rules? Not just IT, but the world at large. How can we change people's interactions? And that's really what's, uh, I think, firing up a lot of developers today. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the network effects there. We've got, you know, I've identified seven of them. We've got speculation, merchants, consumers, miners, uh, developers, financialization, and then this kind of world reserve currency status. So honing in on like the two network effects that you've really kind of hit on, we've got developers and we've got financialization. When you look at the developers, like why do developer developers build the stuff that people want to use that's valuable? And so why would developers want to build on Bitcoin as opposed to building on something else? And if the developers come and build on Bitcoin, as opposed to something else, what does that mean for the entrenchment of that network effect? Like, and any competitors that might try to compete with Bitcoin? I'll answer the second question first. I think that uh, once you have that uh, network effect, you really uh, are incentivized to continue within that project space because you just have so much momentum in other projects. Programmers download, for example, development libraries that are written by other programmers And they build on top of that sort of like layers of an onion. And so if I as a programmer have a specific idea in mind that I want to explore, it's uh, going to be from an engineering standpoint much quicker and much easier for me to download uh, Bitcoin J or Bitcoin Core and build my mobile app on top of that than it is deep diving into uh, every aspect of Bitcoin, writing my own libraries Etc. And so the network effect at an engineering level really uh, builds on the network effect of developer interest and developer participation. And so if it's easier for developers to participate and there are more developers in the ecosystem, which you do see if you can go to github.com, they uh, have some charts and search tools which will show how many uh, repositories are working on Bitcoin-related things. And that graph is basically a hockey stick Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, developer engagement, developer projects, developer activity. And so I think that uh, just like uh, Linux in the early days, you're really seeing exactly the same thing with developers in Bitcoin is uh, there's just incredible momentum and it, like all network effects, builds on itself. 
In terms of uh, developer motivations, in the early uh, stages of a technology, in open source, you have a uh, the phrase, scratch your own itch, which uh, really means that uh, developers are entering the space not because it's lucrative. They're entering the space because it's intellectually challenging. It's very interesting. It's the bleeding edge of technology that's literally changing the world. And so developers see that. They want to be a part of it. They want to have an impact. And they uh, will enter into a project based on their own interests. And then uh, that that's how Linux uh, really got its start with uh, its developer momentum. And then as the ecosystem matures, those developers start to start companies, work for other ecosystem specific companies, and the entire industry grows from there. And so I sort of view developer interest and developer network effect as a uh, catalyst for the entire industry as a whole. Yeah. So what about any potential competitors to Bitcoin? I think it was at a, at a Ripple meeting and they put up a chart and they had identified there are about 4,000 full-time developers working on Bitcoin or Bitcoin related projects. I would say even 10,000 or more. 10,000 or more. And then there's about 200 working on Ripple full-time and 50 or so working on Ethereum full-time. But I mean, those are the top three, you know, decentralized consensus blockchain type projects out there, right? I mean, there's not really anything else that's got anything close to this type of uh, gravity when it comes to developer interest and in, in work. That's right. And I think that uh, Ripple is interesting in uh, that it creates sort of a, a web of interconnections. The Hyperledger project uh, is sort of an interesting related offshoot where they try to connect and federate a lot of these currencies. But I don't really see a lot of new developer interest on Ripple, quite frankly, but Ethereum is all the rage right now. It, uh, they just, uh, Consensus just did a deal with Microsoft to, uh, put, uh, Ethereum blockchain as a service on the Microsoft Azure cloud services platform, which was absolutely huge. And I think that Ethereum is really going to grab a lot of developer interest. And the reason why is it's a brand new paradigm. It's a brand new programming language. It's not just a blockchain. It's literally a new programming language that interacts with an economy. And so you marry the economy with a brand new programming language. And that's, that's just draws programmers uh, like flies to honey. It's just a fantastic synergy. It's a fantastic new technology. I think that most people will look at Ethereum. They'll see, okay, it's a new programming language. It's a very young blockchain. And they'll want to marry the Ethereum programming language to some of their existing environments, some of their existing chains. So I think Rootstock, for example, another project which marries Ethereum and Bitcoin will possibly be some of the uh, uh, market winners because you're combining Bitcoin's transactional security, the hash power security, with uh, this new smart contract programming language. And so that's what uh, those sort of solutions that uh, and the Ethereum guys are coming out with uh, BTC Relay, which is uh, a way to uh, immediately basically pay for dApps in Bitcoin. 
And so that's a, another interesting marriage between the current highly secure Bitcoin network and the newer technologies that are evolving. So I really see uh, Ethereum as one of the leading lights of the new, you know, you call it blockchain 2.0, Bitcoin 2.0, whatever marketing label you want to put on it. Ethereum is really, in my opinion, the first really interesting blockchain after Bitcoin. They've done, they're not a copy like every other altcoin out there with some minor variations to Bitcoin. It's something truly new and innovative. So it's very exciting. How about these teams that are working on stuff? We've got, you know, momentum increasing in the Bitcoin development community and the financialization. I mean, are these big teams coming from like Wall Street, Fortune 500 companies, where do you see those kinds of network effects taking root in terms of this financialization of Bitcoin? Well, in terms of uh, raw developer teams, we're definitely seeing a uh, notable uptick in uh, Bitcoin Core specifically. Uh, some new developers are coming into the space, which are are very uh, we're very excited about. Uh, that's increasing you know, the momentum of code development. That's increasing our code quality through better tests. Uh, etc. But uh, where they're coming from is still not the big financial shops and uh, Fortune 500 companies. It's uh, still uh, the developers that find this very interesting. They uh, are self-motivated to join Bitcoin Core or Ethereum or some of these other development efforts because they, uh, you know, again, they scratch their own itch. They're very interested uh, from a self-motivated perspective. And I think the next wave in 2015, uh, moving forward 16 and 17 is going to be those, uh, as you have the financialization, you're going to see more of the, the corporate teams coming in and contributing to open source. Um, you're going to see, uh, uh, standardization by the big auditors and financial firms on smart contracts on, uh, some uh, typical transactions that are either currency or asset, uh, et cetera, those are all going to uh, basically mature as uh, the financial, uh, the big players in the financial space move from exploratory projects and pilots to actually rolling this out in production. And so I think that there's a, a huge momentum uptick. Uh, we see a lot with, for example, R3, they got... Uh, Headline 25 banks are uh, in their consortium. Just today, there was a headline that blockchain.info spoken with over a hundred banks about their wallet. And, uh, you're, you're starting to see the pilot phase of what's going to be another hockey stick and momentum, in my opinion, with that financialization network effect. You know, switching gears, we've had a lot of, uh, this block size debate. Could you give us a quick rundown on your, on your BIPs, uh, BIP 100 and BIP 102? Like what, what are they? Sure, sure. So, uh, BIP 100 is essentially a, uh, and, you know, in my opinion, it's a exercise in open democracy, uh, in that it is minor voting for a block size increase, but, you know, that's a very simple explanation and we need to unpack it a little bit. Minor voting occurs over three month period. And so you have uh, essentially a slow motion rolling vote for block size at which the users have three months to assess 
is this a good direction? Is this a bad direction? Give feedback to miners about, uh, you know, we'd rather not go here. We like what you're doing, uh, et cetera. And miners in turn are essentially a proxy for the users because miners are, of course, they're paid in Bitcoin. And so their incentive is to maximize that long-term value of Bitcoin because that maximizes their long-term income. And so if they suddenly depart from the user's wishes, that's going to negatively impact Bitcoin's value. And they're, they're just not going to do that. And so I thought that using that proxy effect, that incentive that marries the miners to the users would be a uh, highly effective uh, way to decide what is sort of undecidable. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, block size really posits an economic question of who should use Bitcoin, how many Bitcoin transactions should be on the network, what is the Bitcoin network velocity, bandwidth, transactions per second, etc. And I think that you really want to uh, maximize the ability of users to know what's going on in the system and exercise their voice. And that's what BIP100 aims to do. However, that's a fairly big change, and we may reach the block size maximum, which is currently one megabyte, before we make this decision. And so I designed a second BIP, BIP 102, as strictly a fallback, a uh, short-term bump in the block size from one megabytes to two megabytes. It's very simple. It's uh, almost stupid simple. And there's no, uh, there's no voting. There's no, uh, any sort of adjustment beyond two megabytes. It's just simply changing that number from one to two. And what that does is preserve the current economic policy and state of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin fee market. Once blocks are consistently full, then that's essentially a shift to a new Bitcoin economic policy whereby uh, fees are going to go up. Some of the uh, players are going to be pushed off the system economically. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, for example, there was a project that wanted to store, no kidding, movies in the blockchain. They wanted to chop up movies into little pieces and store those in Bitcoin transactions. And if the Bitcoin fees are very, very, very low, then they can do that. And everyone else has to carry the cost of copying this blockchain with video around the world. And that's just a bad situation we want to avoid. So the, uh, the fees are very good at preventing, they're a necessary part of Bitcoin, and they're very good at preventing these sort of flood attacks, uh, denials of service, and also just really, really bad ideas. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing uh, how many bad ideas get weeded out when people have to pay for them. <laughs> That's right. I mean, that whole free market thing, it's just an amazing concept. <laughs> okay, so you're a user of Bitcoin, a developer of it. That's right. Yeah, my my latest, uh, my latest uh, soapbox has been like, why do people hire Bitcoin? So, you know, I'd like to ask you, like, why, why do you hire Bitcoin? Why do you want to hold it or own the, this magic Internet money? Well, uh, I do think that there's less utility for the modern Western consumer for Bitcoin than uh, as a direct holder. 
I think it's number one, it's a new asset class. And so I would uh, say you want to have it as, you know, 0.5% or 1% of your portfolio as just a uh, diversification, just like you'd uh, have a, a small percentage in gold or something like that. So from an asset class perspective, there's absolutely the argument for holding Bitcoin. From the user perspective, I quite honestly do not see my mother cutting and pasting Bitcoin addresses mm. to send me some money, something like that. That uh, is really why one of the reasons why I think Bitcoin is still in the very, very early days, sort of the early 90s of the Internet in that you are going to see layers built on top of that. For example, the Lightning Network is uh, one example, which provides instant secure Bitcoin payments. And those layers are going to be what is exposed to users through their mobile apps, their wallets. Further, you take that the next step, you're going to see smart contracts, derivatives, and hedging, which uh, eliminate some of the uh, direct exposure to Bitcoin price fluctuations. And so once those layers get built out, I think it's uh, so why do you why do you buy Bitcoin? You know, that's going to be something that in part your mobile app does for you. And you're not going to necessarily notice that you're directly holding Bitcoin. You're just going to notice that your uh, uh, remittances uh, are going very, very rapidly at lower fees. You're going to notice that uh, PayPal-like money transfers are more efficient, they're faster, but you're probably going to see U.S. dollars on your mobile app's uh, screen. So there, that's two legs of it. A third leg is, uh, I think, why do you buy uh, Bitcoin as the company, the product, is really an investment in this new crypto economy. This, uh, I, I truly believe that, uh, Bitcoin is a world changing technology. It's going to change how business operates. It's going to, uh, change how people transact on a day to day basis. But, uh, its greatest legacy, I think, is going to be as a catalyst. It's a catalyst for a new, uh, crypto revolution. Um, you see, uh, from, uh, Fortune 500 companies and banks, uh, piloting Bitcoin and blockchain on down is that they're re-examining not just their uh, technology to say squeeze another percent of efficiency. They are re-examining entire business processes and saying, we're going to get disrupted. Let's, let's get in front of this thing and disrupt ourselves and save the customers some money, become more efficient. And I think that uh, that catalyst is going to change not just big businesses, but it's going to change our trust of each other. Trust is such a huge component in Bitcoin itself in that uh, previously you had to trust uh, some sort of central party if you're transacting large amounts of value. And, uh, typically, you know, escrow or custodians, etc. And uh, the Bitcoin really posits you put a lot of your trust in math, and in this almost organic entity, uh, Chicago Federal Reserve called it an automaton. <laughs> and that's what Bitcoin really is. It's a, uh, uh, you have thousands upon thousands of Bitcoin nodes out there in the world. They're like cells in an organism. Any one, two, ten cells can disappear, die, etc. 
and the organism itself heals and continues on. And so those concepts are changing every level of business, every level of finance. And I think that Bitcoin, the catalyst, is uh, really uh, its greatest legacy. So for the, the financial institutions, uh, lower your shields and surrender your shits. <laughs> <laughs> you will be assimilated. Yeah, resistance is futile. <laughs> resistance is absolutely futile. <laughs> um, what, what I didn't notice you mention was the censorship resistance, the permissionless innovation. Are those critical qualities that, that people want in this, uh, in this new technology? Well, that, that's to a, hire it, to actually buy these bitcoins. That's an interesting question to unpack. Censorship resistance is the core service that Bitcoin provides. If you don't have censorship resistance, you don't have transactional security. You don't have trust in the system. So people buy Bitcoin, the concept, but I don't think they buy it for that specific reason. They buy it because it has censorship resistance. Therefore, it delivers all these new concepts. Or it has the potential, the exactly. potential to deliver these exactly. things. And then it's the probability that it'll actually get delivered, discounted to the net present value. You know, that might be some of the valuation metrics. That's right. But you're saying that the, the censorship resistance is actually the foundation that we have to have to even have that's right. That's and, right. And to get some of this value. Yeah, it's absolutely critical to Bitcoin. If you don't have censorship resistance, you don't have a system. Permissionless innovation is another interesting thing to unpack. Currently in the marketplace, you have uh, several players that are pursuing private blockchains in contrast to uh, Bitcoin, which is a public uh, trustless blockchain. And uh, that's really mirroring sort of the early 90s development of the Internet where you had internet and you had intranet and uh, you can build a private blockchain you can build these private walled gardens and ecosystems but you're not going to achieve that developer network effect that permissionless innovation on a closed CompuServe prodigy like genie uh, yeah oh that that's a blast from the past too uh, type system and so you have to have an open network to bring in those developers, have that developer network effect, bringing uh, users the apps that, uh, in the internet analogy, uh, we have today with mobile apps, location aware. We can, we have, uh, you know, the world's knowledge at our fingertips in a smartphone, and that was all thanks to permissionless innovation at the internet level. And we absolutely have to have permissionless innovation to see the momentum and development in blockchain technology and currency and uh, the higher layers like Ethereum, smart contracts, etc. So permissionless innovation is the definition of what you need in an open network. Yeah. So, you know, I'd just like to t take a moment to thank you for a lot of the work that you've done. You worked on the payment channels in Bitcoin Core uh, for us. You know, you've been committing to Bitcoin since 2010. We haven't necessarily always seen eye to eye on everything, but at the same time, we're still around. We're still here contributing to the ecosystem in a professional way. Just like to really thank you for all the work that you've done uh, on Bitcoin. Well, thank you. So we've had Jeff Garzik. He's a core Bitcoin developer since 2010. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Trace. 
Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. 